eventually going to land in Matthew chapter 6. Sorry, this was way out here, and now I brought it back. Everyone's like, whoa. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. So some of you know I spent my summer vacation or part of it living with monks in a monastery in Italy and my kids called it monk camp. It was, uh, it was unforgettable. Uh, lots of it was great. Some of it was really challenging. There were two big ways I was challenged while I was at monk camp this summer. And I shared the first with you last Sunday. It's in the area of prayer. Um, last Sunday's message was called Monks Pray a Lot. And that was <laughs> kind of the summary of one of the main areas in which I was really confronted, my, the, the area of prayer. And I shared pretty vulnerably uh, with you last Sunday, three observations that I had about myself, about praying with monks, ways in which I was really challenged uh, by their patterns of prayer, by what was revealed to me about my own practice of prayer. Today, I want to share with you a second way in which I was challenged at monk camp. Today's sermon is called Fast Like Monks. So last week, we talked about praying. Today, we're going to mostly talk about eating. But before I get into talking about food, I'm going to talk about a little bit about where we've been last, last week. We've just been talking about, okay, so I want you to see this. We're just talking about really basic things, right? Prayer, food. This is, this is nothing crazy. This is nothing especially deep. This is just real simple stuff. Before I start talking about food, though, series is called Monks, Moms, and Missionaries, Radicals Who Remind Us How to Live. And I was reminded just this last week, because I was listening to the radio driving my truck, that the way we use the word radical in our culture, it's almost totally synonymous with extreme. Uh, in the stories that I heard in which people were referred to as radicals, they, what they meant by that was their perspective, their behavior, their process of communication was so far out of bounds, the credibility was in question. I mean, it was just so far out in, in left field. Um, but what I'm trying to do in this series is, is talk about how um, somebody whose spirituality may be seen as so far out of bounds, so far extreme, might actually not be extreme. It might actually be radical in the true sense of the word radical. Now, I talked about last week how radical comes from the word radix, the Latin word radix, which means root. And so, formally understood, a radical is someone who is close to the root, is root-like, is close to the source of life. And I'm suggesting that some folks whose patterns, whose spirituality, some of the history, some of the heroes of the history of our faith, we might write them off as totally irrelevant to us because, oh my gosh, they're so extreme. Tomorrow, Next Sunday, I'm going to talk about Mary. Sunday after that, I'm going to talk about the Apostle Paul. Oh my gosh, I can't even compare myself to the Apostle Paul, right? He lived an extreme life. Well, maybe he didn't. Maybe he lived a radical life. Maybe our lifestyle, maybe our patterns of living, maybe our priorities are extreme. Maybe somebody like an Apostle Paul can call us back in some way to the source, to what life's really about. Maybe these radicals can show us how to live. That's kind of the premise of this series. So to kind of put this in real practical ways, what I'm trying to say is if you're looking for a radical understanding of parenting, then you're actually looking for the heartbeat of what it means to be a dad. 
what a heartbeat, what it means to be a mom. If you're looking for like a radical marriage, you're trying to get right to the essence of what it means to share life with somebody for the rest of your life. If you're looking for a radical Christian spirituality, you're not playing games with all these fringe ideas. In fact, you're trying to sweep away all those fringe ideas to get back to the essence. Like, what is the real core of faith in Jesus look like? That's what we want to get to, because life comes from the root. So in, in this sense, I think we would agree. We want to be radical. We want to be close to the source of life. You cut the plant off from the root, plant starts to die. Same with people, same with souls. We want to stay close to the root. Some who might be seen as extreme actually aren't extreme. It is we who have slid way out into left field. They're actually radical. We can look to them. They can show us the way back to live. Back to true life. All right, speaking of radicals, in the year 499, an Italian kid who was 19 years old uh, dropped out of college and went to live in a cave by the river, uh, the Enyene River, and uh, that's where he went. He lived as a hermit for three years in this cave. Uh, here's a picture of the cave and the Enyene River down below. Uh, here's a picture of me in the cave. Uh, this is pretty cool. Um, if there's a cool, sacred place in Italy, they build a church on top of it. Uh, so that's what they did. And the church kind of goes up the side of the cliff. And uh, there's the church. In the back of the cave was this old, falling apart fresco of a scene from Benedict's life. It kind of looks like a dinner table scene. I'll tell you about that someday. And then if you focus in on the left side of the, of the piece of art, it's just in this cave. Uh, somebody named Ventura scribbled their name in there in 1939, which I thought was so funny. I'm going to talk to Tom Ventura about that, see if that was his dad or his mom or something like that. So in 499, Roman culture, it's in total chaos. It's like a couple of generations after Rome has fallen. It's being sacked repeatedly over and over again by uh, super strong, but maybe in some ways less uh, developed nations. And the Christian church during this time has been co-opted by those seeking power, it's been terribly compromised and corrupted in the process. So like a lot of college students, Benedict became disillusioned with the government and disappointed with the church, and he bailed out of the whole thing. He just unplugged from the system. He went off the grid. He lived as a hermit in a cave for three years. But by the time he reached his 60s, he was leading more than a dozen Christian communities called monasteries, and he had written the rule, which was a short manual for how to live as a Christian in this culture, where they didn't have Bibles and most of them didn't read, right? So he's credited with having a massive impact, not only on the survival of Christianity in Europe, but on basically the, the survival of Western civilization in Europe, now, the most important thing to understand about St. Benedict, in my opinion, and the most important thing to understand about monks, because who thinks about monks most of the time, is, is this. It's their purpose in the world. Like, what is, what is the deal? What, what are they doing, uh, those monks? Well, their role is to be a radical reference point. That's what they're doing. Their role is to be a radical reference point. And by radical, I'm talking about root-like. I'm talking about uh, at the source of life. The purpose of monks is to be a radical reference point. In other words, it's to demonstrate this truth, that a relationship with God is the fundamental reality of life. They're trying to show us that. Relationship with God is not, listen to our common language here, it's not a part of life. 
No, a relationship with God is life. This is the essence of life. This is what we were created for. What does that mean? It means that if you hear yourself saying phrases like, I'm trying to fit God into my life, I'm trying to fit God into my understanding of my profession, I'm trying to fit God in, you are living in an extreme way. You are approaching faith like out of left field. You're, you're so far from the source of what you were created to be and to experience in terms of your relationship with God. It was created, you were created to be in relationship with your creator. You were made to know your maker, right? So this, I like, let me sprinkle a little bit of like religion into the rest of my life is like, that's this totally extreme approach. You're missing, you're missing it fundamentally. Um, you, you were created to like root all of your life. Relationship with God should be the main thing. It should be your first thing. It should be the last thing. It should be the defining thing. It should be everything. That's what we were made for. We struggle against this all the time, and many of us could point to a lot of reasons why. But the reason monks exist is because humanity has forgotten that we were created to be in union with God, and we need people to remind us of that very simple truth. So to summarize what I'm saying, the most important thing to understand about monks, in my opinion, is their purpose that they are to be a radical reference point to the church to live radically different lives, such radically God-focused lives that they remind us where the source of life is, what matters most in life, and in that sense to remind us how to live. Now listen, you can question their methods if you want. That's totally fair. They may be, maybe they're wrong on how they're going about trying to remind the world of what's true. People have always questioned monks' methods. It's easy to question monks' methods, right? People used to say, Benedict, what are you accomplishing there in the back of your cave? Right? So you can question their methods, but you got to understand, uh, at least I hope that you would understand their, their, des their designed purpose, what they're trying to accomplish, because we need it. We need it. Now, the church is not the monastery, is it? The church is different from the monastery. The church is called to be a light in the world. The church is called to kick in the gates of hell. The church is called to take care of widows and orphans, to advocate for the oppressed, right? The church is called to restore the brokenness of the world, to get dirty, to be in the world, right? You should have dirt on your boots if you're doing the work of the church, because we're supposed to be in the world, and that's really, really messy work. And when you're involved in really, really messy work, maybe you've noticed this, you can sort of lose a sense of larger orientation. You can kind of begin to forget what's the bigger picture. Why am I doing this work that is like so challenging and so devoid of gratitude? Why am I doing this work in which I mostly fail? And so it can be really easy to kind of lose a sense of the bigger idea. Monks are supposed to serve as a radical reminder to the church, specifically at this point, of the source of power for the church. And we need this reminder because if you've been involved in church, you know this. There are all kinds of temptations to pull our attention towards alternative sources of power, political power financial power, the power of fame, the power of being well-connected to the right people. Pastors struggle with how to, man, do I, do I go ahead and ride that train a bit, or do I trust that God is the source of the power for this organization, for this effort? Monks are radical reference points trying to remind the church God is the source of power. Life is about relationship with him. We're going to live in a way that is so close to the root of things, most people will see us as extreme. To get your attention 
so that those paying attention will say, man, that is such a radical reminder of the bigger picture. I can move in that direction and take a step towards health. All right, so here's one of the things that's interesting to me about my time at the monastery this summer. I heard no sermons. Nobody's preaching there. I just lived with the monks. I just shared life with the monks. I ate with them. I worked with them, prayed with them. Turns out living with people is a really effective way to be (laughs) impacted or shaped by people. Um, And maybe you've seen this. Maybe you've had somebody live with you in your house for a while. Maybe it's family and it's just three days, thank goodness, or whatever, like during Christmas. Or maybe some, like a friend has been in need and and you've invited them to stay with you in your home and you're like, it's not going to be a problem because they're like family, right? It'll be easy. And what you mean by that is they're going to think like you and they're going to act like you and they're going to treat the refrigerator like you treat it and they're going to treat the bathroom like you treat it. And you're like, what in the world? Then they move in and three days later, you're like, you're crazy. You're so different than me. This isn't the way we do things in my house, right? These are the kinds of revelations that came to me just through living with people whose pattern is so different from mine. And, and, and I talked to you about last, last Sunday about how just living and, and sharing life with these monks revealed how different my approach to prayer was than their approach to prayer. Um, it's not that, I'm not trying to actually say that theirs is right, but I had a, I, there was a lot of room in my life to move in that direction towards greater commitment to prayer. And, and living with them revealed how far I had slipped into pretty, pretty much like this apathetic uh, approach to prayer. The other big challenge, believe it or not, this is going to sound kind of silly, I think, but it had to do with food. It had to to do with food. Last week I talked about prayer. Today I'm going to talk about food. I'm going to talk about fasting. Fasting is when you intentionally go without something. Traditionally food, maybe, maybe entertainment, maybe sex, maybe all kinds of things you can abstain from for a spiritual purpose. We're talking about some really basic practices here in Christian spirituality. We're talking about prayer and fasting. It doesn't really get any more basic than this. But I need you to know this up front because you're already thinking, oh my gosh, I've heard this like 9,000 times. We're not actually talking about prayer and fasting. Okay, we're talking about something that's deeper than that, it's behind that, much more significant, much more important to that. And I'm going to get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you how hungry I was, Gavin. Okay? I was hungry. In a normal day at the monastery, there are five prayer times, and there are two times for like scriptural reading, and there are 10 hours between the time you wake up and the time you eat your first meal. So I was hungry. I was hungry. And so the first meal is at 7, I mean, I'm sorry, at 1, and the second meal of the day is at 7. The normal day is two meals a day, and most days are normal, but some days are fasting days. Minimum two fasting days a week. Sometimes there were four fasting days a week. And on fasting days, you just have one meal at five. And when I arrived the first day, they're like, hey, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Oh, by the way, today's a fasting day, so we won't be eating. And uh, in two days is a feasting day, and we always fast before we feast. So tomorrow we won't be eating either. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a fun start, right? I'm, I'm going to be hungry. And I must have, because I'm coming off of like three weeks with my family in Italy where all we did was eat, okay? <laughs> All we did was eat. What did you do? We went to museums and churches and food places. That's what we did. We just ate, 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 ate. We, it was like a lot of gelato and a lot of pizza. So I'm coming off that, and then I'm suddenly, I'm suddenly hungry, and apparently I'm complaining about it to my wife through text messaging, which is really mature. And uh, so she tells me later, apparently she's talking to somebody about, about how I'm hungry in Italy, and because um, in Nicaragua, 
love is food. So this is really hard for her to know that I'm hungry. And she's like, I don't know why he doesn't just walk to the town, which is like a half an hour away, and buy some food. And Matthias, my eight-year-old, who is always listening, he says this from the back of the van. Well, maybe he wants to just fully embrace their lifestyle. (laughs) And he's actually right. I mean, that's exactly right. I've been reading about Benedictine monks for 10 years. I know some things about Benedictine monks. But all I know about Benedictine monks, I've read in books. And that's not really the full picture, is it? So I wanted to go live with these guys. I wanted to see what it was like. I wanted to embrace their lifestyle as fully as I could and as much as they would allow me to. And the question that I've been asked more than any other question since I got back a couple weeks ago was, what was that like? Which is one of those questions you're like, you have no idea how much time you got, right? So, but one of the ways I respond to that question, like in a word, is, well, it was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. Specifically, it was physically uncomfortable. And that was challenging. That was challenging. But here's what was more challenging. Uh, What was more challenging was the fact that my body and my mind and my soul violently rebelled against my being uncomfortable. Uh, I was a bit rattled, friends, and more than a bit convicted by just how committed I am to being comfortable. I'm committed to it, apparently. (laughs) Um, Like some of the just basic human appetites, when they're not fed, it's like I became way more selfish, noticeably different, even to myself, Right? In other words, I do okay loving God and loving people when I'm rested and well fed. <laughs> but you take away a couple of meals, and I'm suddenly a pretty selfish guy. Like, subtract a couple thousand calories, and I'm struggling. I'm really having a hard time. And, and that was surprising to me. Why was it surprising to me? Well, a couple of reasons it was surprising. First is, I've read the Bible. I've read it. And, and is there anyone, is there any faithful character in the Bible that escapes discomfort, if not full-blown persecution and real suffering? No, there's not. There's n- nobody. Moses wanders 40 years in the desert. They're criticizing his leadership the entire time. King David has always got some sort of enemy just prowling around the edges. And then ultimately his son turns on him, right? Paul in the New Testament just beat up his whole life, right? Shipwrecked, bit by snakes, hungry, naked, in the ocean. Jesus, right? How has a community, and I mean Christianity, which has been fundamentally shaped by the Holy Bible, arrived at a place where we are surprised when life is not comfortable? And yet, this is the actual tension that is going on inside me at the same time. So I want to pick apart all these sort of cultural dynamics, but at the same time, I'm feeling this real tension inside myself. I mean, there's just no way you take a Bible into a cave, read it, and come out and saying, well, clearly following God sounds easy. It's not going to happen, right? You're not going to come out of a cave having read the Bible and go, well, I pretty much can summarize it as three easy steps towards a comfortable life. 
because that's not the message. And yet there's all this, I mean, supposedly one out of four sermons given in America today are going to be about some form of prosperity gospel. Like 25% of the sermons in our country. There's this real surge, even in the Christian community, towards self-care. And that's important. That is important to a certain degree, right? To a certain degree. There's this pressure on the church, man, to make everything just so comfortable. And man, the reason people aren't coming to your church is because of all these ways that it's not comfortable for them. And I've even been at churches where they have literally said from the platform, we just want you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the service. I'm going, how do you reconcile this premium on personal comfort with the teachings of Jesus? And then then I'm looking at myself, Rich, and I'm like, how do I reconcile my personal premium on my own comfort with the teachings of Jesus? So I was a bit rattled by that, just to be frank. And then a second reason I was shaken um, by just how you know, hard it was to be, on, to be uncomfortable was the reason I went there was to grow. And so I expected a certain degree of challenge. I expected it to be you know, different, if not hard. And can you even think of a single kind of personal growth or professional development or new birth, or new life, or real health that kind of emerges in a context in which personal comfort is prioritized? I can't. I can't. Comfort's certainly not a priority at the gym when you're working out. It's not even really a value. Nobody expects to be comfortable while they're doing sit-ups. You don't even expect to be comfortable doing sit-ups. And some exercise programs... Uh, They recommend that you do a certain exercise to the point of exhaustion, which means you can't do that single rep even one more time. Why in the world did you do that to yourself? Because it's that point between comfort and discomfort where the growth happens. That's where the muscle gets developed. That's where the power comes and increases. You with me? So many of us will willingly follow physical guidance that pushes us to the point of comfort and beyond it. Many of us will follow educational advice that takes us to the point of comfort and beyond it. We'll follow professional counsel that takes us right to the point of comfort and beyond it. But boy, try to bring some spiritual counsel that takes us to the point of comfort and beyond it, and like something like that encourages a spirituality that actually makes a real difference in real life, and we expect to be able to do that without breaking a sweat. We expect it to be easy. Somehow, this message has just become completely infiltrated in the preaching of the, of the Bible that, man, we ought to be able to do this, follow God, while maintaining a premium on personal comfort. And I'm just thinking to myself, how does that make sense? How does that make sense in the church? How does that make sense in my life? You know, you talk to a college student who pulls an all-nighter, because it's like finals or whatever, and you might think, man, what? you know, you're crazy. You stayed up all night long, but something about even the way if you've been, has anyone ever done that, pulled an all-nighter in, in college? Okay, like a lot. So part of your asking them a question about that, probably if you're honest, it, re, it, it conveys a certain level of conviction that, you know what, good job. You did what it took. Like sometimes it takes staying up all night to get the job done, and nobody expects staying up all night to be comfortable, do they? No one expects that to feel good. 
Or if you're a small business owner, maybe something breaks and it's your business. So you got to work all through the weekend. Maybe you got to miss a couple soccer games. And at the end of the weekend, you might have some friends that empathize with you. Man, I'm sorry you had to miss your kids' games. That's too bad. But also they're thinking, but you know what? That's kind of, that's what it takes sometimes when it's your own business. And some of you who own small businesses, if you're honest, you'd probably say, yeah, that's right. Get the work done, man. That's what it takes. Like way to do the work. Sorry you missed the soccer games, but that's what sometimes working through the weekend is what it takes to grow. Is it comfortable? No. And no one expects it to be, right? It's naive to think that you could grow your business or that you could grow your soul with the perspective that says, I will do it as long as I stay comfortable. That's just naive. Sometimes when our faith gets difficult, we can even fall into this thinking like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? When following God gets hard, we go, oh my gosh, what's wrong? What's, what's going wrong? Like somehow suffering or even just difficulty reveals that there's something the matter. Maybe it's just a good part of the process. Like everything else when you grow, right? So I've been talking to some teachers in the last couple of weeks because everyone's getting ready to go back to school. Some have already started. And uh, I was asking this teacher how, what their schedule looked like, and they were saying, yeah, I'm excited that I'm going to teach basic level classes this term, not honors level classes. And I was like, really? I would expect you to prefer honors level classes. I guess it reveals my bias or something. I would think maybe those students were maybe more motivated or would turn in homework or something like that. Why do you want to do basic level classes? And this is what they said. I thought it was brilliant, so I wrote it down in my little journal. Said this, many of the kids in honors classes aren't used to struggling to get what they want. Yeah. As soon as there's a sign of struggle, they assume there's something wrong with the system. Okay, not them, with the system. And then the parents, rather than confronting this off perspective in their students, often nurture that same perspective, email, call, and say, my students never struggled in school before. As if struggling in school is always a bad thing, right? I know sometimes it is, but not always. As if there's something wrong with the system. If struggling is a problem. Person said, a lot of kids aren't allowed to face hard things by their parents. And then they said, in what world is achievement easy? So who of us would actually believe that the best way to grow in wisdom or the best way to grow in strength or the best way to grow in spiritual power is to prioritize our personal comfort? I, I don't think any of you would, would agree with that. I don't think any of you would believe that until your stomach starts growling, right? And then you're like, man, I'm hungry. I need some chips. And then we're just going in that direction regardless of what else was on the table at the moment. A table, isn't that funny? I used a metaphor that's food. All right. Now, is, is physical comfort and spiritual growth always in conflict? No. No. Not always. But often. Okay, often. Spiritual growth, personal comfort, mutually exclusive, can't go together ever? No, no. But so frequently, friends, it is the priority on personal comfort that actually shows up to be the practical barrier or roadblock towards taking the next step towards personal growth. Over and over again, I'm finally able to say I've been a pastor for 20 years, which makes me sound way wiser than I probably am, right? This is what people say. I, you know, I just couldn't get up. I just couldn't wake up and get there. I just couldn't get there, you know? It's this, it's this practical 
choosing comfort, right, that just happens over and over again, that ultimately it's like not a big deal, and yet it becomes a big deal because it's the roadblock. It's the thing that, that keeps us um, from taking the next, next step spiritually. Now, here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Okay, here's the good news. I can be pretty judgmental. You're probably picking up on a little bit of that. I can be judgmental of others, and I can be really judgmental of myself. So I'm an equal opportunity judger. Um, but here's the good news about Jesus. He does not rail on people for their misplaced affections on food or on comfort or shelter or companionship or clothes, all of which, by the way, are good things, aren't they? They're all good things. Jesus does address these things, what I'm saying is he doesn't focus on the problem of misplaced affections or priorities. Instead, Jesus just lifts up the main thing. That's what he does. He just lifts up the main thing. He doesn't spend all this time saying, don't, 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 don't. That never ends. That list never ends. Instead, he just says, do this. And he lifts up the main thing. And what he does is he invites us and encourages us to pursue our creator over creature comforts. And the way Jesus puts it in Matthew 6, is this. He says, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. God's kingdom is that state in which God is king. He's in charge. He's leading. And we're acknowledging that he is king. And we're following. And seek his righteousness. That's where everything's in order. That's where everything's the way it should be. Life's full of all kinds of good stuff. But they're well-ordered. They're appropriately ordered. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. Maybe you've got it open. You can see the context of the conversation. They're talking about what to eat, where are they going to buy their food, who's going to pay the bills next week. They're talking about real life. They're talking about worry. It's what they're talking about. And Jesus' response isn't to rail on them for being so off balance in their prioritizing all these physical needs, his, his, his perspective is to lift up the main thing. He says, seek first God. Seek first God, his righteousness. Does Jesus talk about fasting? Yes, he does. He actually does. In fact, he assumes his Jewish brothers and sisters will be fasting twice a week. So it's, it's no lightweight perspective. Does Jesus talk about eating? Oh yeah, all the time. He even encourages us to pray every day, our daily bread, which means a lot of things, including food. In fact, Jesus is often seen eating and drinking, and some of his best teachings, I think, come out of these scenes where he's eating and drinking, but his priorities are clear, his affections are well-ordered, and when he is tempted or tested at the beginning of his ministry in the wilderness, and when he is tempted and tested at the end of his ministry in the garden, his choice is clear. Satan says, you're hungry? Turn these rocks into bread. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. He's crystal clear on that. End of his ministry, you don't have to do the cross thing, right? There's got to be another way. So the night before he's going to go to the cross, he says to his father, he prays, your will be done. Seek first God's kingdom, God's righteousness. And that leads me to a simple question. And for me, this is the kind of question, even though it's super, super simple, this is a really helpful question for me because it just cuts right through all the stuff in my life and the issues and the things I need to like wrestle with or not. There's the question. Am I pursuing greater comfort or greater devotion? Are you pursuing greater comfort 
or, or greater devotion? What kind of life are you actually living? What does your calendar reveal? What, is, what are you seeking first? What's your top priority? What's your credit card statement say? What's the top priority? Is it greater comfort or is it greater devotion? What do your actions actually communicate? Super simple question, but it's really challenging, and I acknowledge that it is. And I realize I am like touching on something that our culture has just totally swallowed as like, hey, it's the way it is, man. This is North America. This is Northern California. We're comfortable. Greater comfort and greater devotion are not necessarily in conflict, but they usually are. Because it's hard to seek first more than one thing. You can only seek first one thing. So we got to decide what it's going to be. Food, sleep, sex, good things. But they can get disordered and then they be can become very destructive things. And that's where the problems arise. So I'll end with this. Two real practical ideas for ways that you could challenge yourself to, I mean, I'm going to pursue greater devotion over greater comfort. What is the first battle of the day? What is your first battle of the day? Maybe for you it's something else. For me, it's getting out of bed. I mean, it starts right away. That's when I start fighting, right? And my body is screaming one thing. Stay. Stay here. Be comfortable, right? Pursue comfort. Don't get out of bed. And my body's like in revolt. I have things I want to do. I have things that are important. I've been embracing this pattern of prayer. I got to get out of bed. That's important. But the, the, the decision must be made by the will, not my body, because my body wants comfort, pure and simple. That's all my body wants. And I got to just get above that and beyond that. And so that first moment of the day is that point in which I have an opportunity to pursue devotion instead of comfort. My body wants comfort. So because it's physical, I have to address it on a physical level. I cannot lay there and go, I choose devotion over comfort. I have to like roll out of bed, right? I got to like lurch over and then I got to kneel down and I got to be like, okay, I'm going physical with this because it's a physical challenge and I am choosing, even if it's just through an action and my mind is still super gone because I'm so tired, I'm choosing devotion over comfort. Another, another place where this has been playing out recently for me is uh, in the middle of the day. Most of us, I know not all of us, everyone's got different schedules, but most of us take a break in the middle of the day. We call it lunch. Our bodies crave it. There's this need. It's called hunger, and it's like calling for this break. I imagine some of you are in the habit of pausing, even if just briefly or silently before you eat lunch, to say just a quick prayer of thanks to God, which is a beautiful thing. But you know what I do when I'm done eating? I just get up and walk away. That's what I do. I just get up and walk away. Um, I don't even think twice about it. What if, as a way of pursuing greater devotion over greater comfort, we paused after the meal to thank God for his good provision? All right, before, after, like what's the, what's the difference? What difference does that make? Here's what I've noticed. My hunger drives me to recognize my need for God and to thank him for the food before I eat. That's fine. 
Hunger's a great trigger. Hunger reminds me to pray. Fear also reminds me to pray. Facing overwhelming odds reminds me to pray. Of course it does. People who don't even pray, pray when they're facing overwhelming odds. That's nothing special, right? I want to grow beyond that, friends. I want to take it to another level. I want to pursue devotion over comfort. So once I've eaten and I'm fine and I'm comfortable and I'm feeling good, that's when I need to stop and express gratitude to God for what I've been what I've enjoyed, what I've been given, that's a good time for me to train myself to pray, not just before the provision, when I'm painfully aware of my need after the provision, when the temptation is to think, I'm good, I'm good, I'm comfortable. Friends, the problem with devotion does not come when we know we're in need, does it? The problem with devotion comes when we're feeling comfortable. It's one of the oldest patterns in humanity. You read about it in Judges, the beginning of the Bible. The needy are devoted. The comfortable are apathetic. So it is in our comfort that we need to start to peel back the layers and take steps towards greater devotion. So there's two practical ideas. Uh, What about you? Where are you pursuing greater comfort. It's not a bad thing. Where are you pursuing greater comfort? Identifying that in your life, it might, it might show you where you could instead pursue greater devotion because you're looking for something here, right? That's why you're pursuing greater comfort here. You're, you're, you're responding to a need and a hunger Your body is already way ahead of your mind and your spirit. It wants that. Why? What's going on there? Might that place in your life where comfort is so attractive, gosh, I really want that. Could you reel that back a few steps and redirect that longing and take a step towards greater devotion? Hey, what if we fast like monks? And by that I mean consistent, regular, corporate, that means all of us, community, fasting. What if in an effort to pursue greater devotion, you know what, you might not know where you're pursuing greater comfort right now. That question might have gone right over your head. If you fast food for a day, you're going to start to find some answers to that question. You will. All the comfort will be peeled back and the rawness will be exposed and you'll start to see insights and it probably won't be fun, at least based on my experience. You'll probably see some parts of yourself that are really immature. But what if in an effort to pursue greater devotion over greater comfort, we embraced fasting? Because I believe this will be helpful and because, of, because I know that it works better, anything hard works better when you know others are in it with you, I, I, I want to invite you to fast with me on Wednesdays. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to post about it. Right? Um, but if it would be, it's helpful for me to kind of briefly go public with, I need to grow in this area. Here's how I'm going to do it. And if it would be helpful for you to join with some others, then would you just let me know later? I, I'm going to join you on Wednesdays. I'm not prescribing how, what it's got to look like, what it is, if it's food or something else. I don't care. But if it would be helpful for you, we could do this together. And so for the fall, 
Wednesdays. This is what we're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And if you'd like, you can, you can join with me. Um, and may we, uh, in a culture where comfort is king, may we become a community headed for greater devotion. Amen? Let's pray. We really need your grace here, Lord, because we're swimming in this and we cannot even see it. Um, our, our whole culture is just, it, it is all dictated by comfort. So uh, I pray for help. I pray for mercy and grace. Um, to the degree that comfort in our life is destructive, to the degree that it is numbing us to the real need for you, I pray against it. Um, to the degree that comfort is healing us and reminding us of your companionship and your goodness, I pray for more of that. But to the degree that the comfort is just making us soft and apathetic, I just pray for the alertness and the grace that we need to step into um, just a more intentional pursuit of you. May we seek first God and his righteousness, trusting that he will provide all these other things that are calling for our attention. In the name of Christ, amen.